0: I'd like for you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, and I'm reading verses 1 through 9. I want to talk to you this morning about the truth of the Christian life from the, uh, the doctrinal series on the great truths of the, ta- of the Scripture. Peter, an apostle of, of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice even though now for a little while if necessary you have been distressed by various trials that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ who, through, who though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with inexpressible, with joy inexpressible and full of glory obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls a preacher friend of mine was walking out in the parking lot one day and he he saw this lady she had a brand new car and he uh, he just asked her he said well how do you like your new car boy that's a magnificent automobile And she said well he said it's got something wrong with it he said what what's the problem she said Alice well, you know how it is you get a new car and takes you about six months to get all the bugs out of it. He said, well, what kind of bug has it got? And she said, well, I can't ever get the windshield wiper turned off. He said, I've turned it every way, and I can't get it turned off. And he said, well, let me see what, what the deal is. So he, he turned on the key, and in about ten seconds, this windshield wiper went over there and went back. About ten seconds later, it went over like that and went back. He, he did that a couple of times, and... He said, oh, he said, you, you, you've got uh, one of these intermittent wipers here. He said, let me show you how you turn that off. And he, he turned it the opposite way of what she'd been turning it, and, and, and it turned off. And he said, now, what you need to do, he said, you need to read your owner's manual. And uh, she looked at him kind of with a quizzical look and said, owner's manual? Um, you know, sometimes uh, if you don't read your owner's manual, you're going to miss out on uh, some of the things you, you have you don't know you have. And, and you've got to read the owner's manual before you can possess what you possess. I mean, there are a lot of things you may see as a defect that really is a luxury item when you read your owner's manual. I, I, I found that out from personal experience. When I, I moved out to Tulia, Texas. I, I bought me a new car, you know, big church, new car. I mean it was fully loaded. I just didn't know how loaded it was. I drove that sucker about two years and one day I was sitting on a, at, a, at a mall waiting on market to get, out, get from, out from shopping. and I didn't have anything else to do so I just reached in the glove compartment and took out the owner's manual. First time, opened it up and read it. and I, They had gadgets all over it I'd never used. It even had a button inside the glove compartment that would open the trunk. I saw that little yellow button there. I didn't know what it was for, you know. I thought the trunk just kept coming up, couldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't. And, and it reminds me of, of a lot of Christians who live for years and never know what they possess. You know, it helps if you read the owner's manual when you get saved. And that's what the New Testament is. Among other things, it, is, it describes what a person possesses, what he has what it means to be a Christian. What happens to him when he becomes a Christian? What occurs in his life and what does does he possess as a believer? As a matter of fact, that's what this passage does that I've read. It's loaded. As a matter of fact, the first nine verses of 1 Peter touch on almost every major issue of the Christian life and it is a detailed account of what happens when a person gets saved. And when you discover that, let me tell you something, one of the most important things you will ever discover is what happened to you when you got saved and what you possess now as a believer. And when you discover that, it makes a whole lot of things, it makes a lot of sense out of what happens to us, what is happening to us in life. It's like a tapestry. You know, you look at it from the backside and there's no purpose, no design, no meaning to that, but you turn it over and get the... get. God's perspective on life and and you understand why then all of a sudden some of the things are happening to you the way they're happening to you. So I want to talk to us this morning about what it means, what, what is the truth about the Christian life. Now I don't have three points in a poem in this sermon. I got five points and no poem. But take heart, they're short. All right, number one. A Christian is a person who has been, God has personally selected from the world. And you don't get out of verse 1 until you bump up against that word again. The word, it's translated in the New American Standard, chosen. If you got a King James, it means it's the word elected. And all of a sudden, we bump up against that word again, election. Now, I need to tell you right up front this morning, I don't understand the doctrine of election of predestination. I don't understand that. And upon saying that word and upon reading that word, we immediately enter into a dimly lit room. And this, is, this theological ground is, is, faith walks on it pretty successfully, but reason stumbles when you get into this matter of election. Somebody asked me one time, and said, you believe in, in, in election, you believe in the doctrine of election? I said, I don't have any choice. I mean, it's everywhere in the Bible. The word means to, dis- to select out from. It means to select out from for oneself. And what it's saying is that God saved you. You're saved by God and you're saved for God. And God in His sovereignty selected you out from the world for Himself. It's a fact. On one occasion Jesus said, No man comes to me except it be given him from the Father. And he said another time, no one comes to me except the, except the Spirit draws him. But in another place, he says, whosoever will may come. Now, how do you reconcile that? In one place, he says, nobody comes to me except God gives him the privilege and God draws him. In another place, it says, it says whoever wants to come can come to be saved. I don't wanna, how do you reconcile that? I don't know all that means. But I know, I know it means this. It means that if you come to God, it's because He has drawn you like a magnet. It means that if you want to be saved, it's because God gave you the want to. It means that you did not initiate your salvation. God dictated it. Sometimes we talk about choosing God and accepting Christ. You don't really do that, really. I mean in the strictest sense. You don't really choose Him or accept Him. You just second His motion of choosing you. I mean, you don't choose God, you just respond to His choice of you. Now, how can I ever doubt, how can I ever worry about my my salvation or my circumstances? Paul said, who's ever going to lay any charge against God's elect? I mean, who's going to lay a charge against those that God has selected for Himself out of the world? Now, notice the basis of that election. It's according to His foreknowledge, the Scripture says. In other words, our salvation is on the basis of God's knowing beforehand. Now, I want to pause and make something clear here. How many times have you heard people say that in trying to explain election or or salvation uh, uh, like this or foreknowledge like this, that, that God way back before the foundation of the world knew that you were going to trust Jesus, you were going to accept Him, so He chose you. Now, the only thing wrong with that is that it's wrong. If God shows you on the basis of what He saw in you, that makes salvation a matter of works. I mean, look at this. If God looked inside of you and He saw something in you that He didn't see and the person who sits in front of you in church on Sunday morning and on the basis of what He saw in you, He saved you, that would make salvation a matter of merit. And salvation is unmerited favor. It's God's act of grace. The Scripture says that we're saved by the good pleasure of His will. Why did He save you? Because you had something in you that that He liked? No, He saved you because He wanted to. I mean, that's a profound answer, but that's the answer. We need to clarify what that word foreknowledge means, the biblical word. Now watch this carefully. Every time that word foreknowledge is found in Scripture, it is never associated with God's previous knowledge of information. It's never associated with God's previous knowledge of fact. It's always associated with God's previous knowledge of you. It means that God didn't know something about you before you were ever born, before the foundation of the world was dug. It means that God knew you before the foundation of the world was ever dug. And a perfect example of that is the first chapter of the book of Jeremiah, verse 5. And God came to Jeremiah and said, Before you were ever formed in the womb of your mother, I knew you. Now I know some facts about President Bush, but I don't know President Bush. God doesn't just know facts about you. He knew you before the foundation of the world and entered into that intimate relationship with you that's only described in the intimacy of husband and wife. All right, and what it means is this, that God drew a circle around your life and the Holy Spirit went to work on you. Now listen to me. What's the difference between some, uh, one person who comes to church on Sunday morning and he listens to the sermon, doesn't do a flipping thing for him? He's a lost man, I mean, he counts the bricks on the wall. I mean, there's some people who've been here long enough, they, know every, they don't have many bricks on these walls. You know, they sit in here and they count the bricks, and they leave and, and absolutely nothing happens to them. And in the same service, a guy sitting in the same service, just all of a sudden God takes his, you know, there's something happens on the inside of him. And he goes out of here just deeply touched and moved. He can't get away from it. I mean, he goes home, he tries to forget it, he goes to bed at night, tries to forget it, and can't. And for the rest of his life, it just eats away at him. It just gnaws on him. Oh, he has learned, he he learns how to put it aside, but he can never forget it, and he can never walk away from it. You know what's the difference? Well, that guy's had the Holy Spirit's sanctifying work. Now, what's this. It means that God just draws a circle around you, and the Holy Spirit says, okay, you're it. Let me tell you something. You may have come to vacation Bible school last two weeks ago and the Holy Spirit started speaking to your heart and you had that little feeling, that little drawing inside of you. That means that God drew a circle around you and the Holy Spirit says you're it and you're never going to get away from that. And it never gets any better. Now it may take a long time for you to be saved, but it never gets any better. I witnessed to a guy out in West Texas, and when I went and witnessed to him, I know that God was speaking through me to him. and he, he just had a teeth, tooth extracted and, and he was hurting, and, and he, he was listening to every word. I said, never had listened to a preacher before, and the Holy Spirit just moved in on him. His wife, his wife called me a couple of weeks later, she said, "What on earth did you say he's been as grouchy as a bear? He's hard to live with. He just got worse." I mean, it's been 15 years since I went out and witnessed to him. I got a call not long ago and said he walked the aisle and accepted Christ. took 15 years to do it. The Holy Spirit didn't leave him alone. Now, a Christian is somebody that God selects out of the world personally. Secondly, a Christian is a person who is a stranger to the world. Now, did you catch that in verse verse 1? He said you live as aliens in a strange land. Let me tell you what, that word aliens, it's it's the word stranger in the King James. It means a short stay in a strange place. The moment you become a Christian, you begin a short stay in a strange place. And you can actually sing that song. This world's not my home, I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Let me tell you something. When you become a Christian, you begin a short stay in a strange place. You You have a heavenly attachment. You never be satisfied with this world anymore. You know why some Christians are so miserable? Is because after having become a Christian, they try to keep they try to maintain their attachment to the world, they try to maintain their relationship to the world and you can't do it anymore. When you become a Christian, you have a heavenly attachment. It means you'll never be comfortable with the world anymore and you'll never be totally satisfied. And as long as you try to maintain a flirtatious, flirtatious relationship with the world, you'll just be miserable for it. We have got a preacher friend. He, for years he pastored over in, Indi, over in England. I went over and preached revivals for him. And he pastored a military church. And The last time I was talking to him, i tell him he's kind of homesick. And, I asked him about it. When it was the last time you saw your folks, he said, you know, he said, I am so homesick. He said, I've been in depression. He said, I know that God has placed us here and we're going to spend the rest of our life here in England if it's necessary, but he said, we miss our homeland. He said, I read all I can read about America. He said, you know, it's just not the same. We minister to these people and we love them and we've come to plan our life here, but our heart's somewhere else child of God has a heavenly attachment and he has a higher allegiance. You say, well, everybody's doing it. Well, not everybody in heaven's doing it. That's the way we operate down here, we're told. But we don't, we don't belong here anymore, you say. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now we have a higher allegiance. We are to live on earth, but we're to be responsible to the will of him who's in heaven. It's called the anti-structure by John Killing. Man's um, having to tell about the, told about the boys who were marching in a parade, and they were all marching in step pretty well, except one little boy. He's totally out of step. They found out he had a transistor radio in his pocket. And he's, listening on an earphone, and he, he was marching to the music of that was 200 miles away, said Vance Havner, the, the, the child of God who knows his Bible, is marching to the beat of a distant drummer. He's out of step the big parade. I can't, I can't act like I used to act anymore. And if you're uh, submitting to the pressure of a worldly standard, it must mean that you don't have a higher allegiance. For once you become a Christian, you can't walk... Who's stepping to the step of, the, of this world anymore? There's a, new, there's a new allegiance. There's a higher allegiance. Says Vance Havner, it's like the Nighthawk. As long as he's in the sky at night soaring, he's powerful and glorious and strong, but you put him down on earth and he's clumsy and ugly. And so the child of God who has this heavenly attachment and this higher allegiance can't live like he used to live. He doesn't fit here anymore. You ever notice that? He's totally out of step. out of of sync. All right, third, this is important. A Christian is a person who's scattered throughout the world. Did you notice that in verse 1? He said that you are to those, he wrote this letter to those who were scattered in Cappadocia and, and Bithynia and those other places. You turn to the second chapter of the book of Acts, it says that persecution came upon the church and it was scattered throughout the world and you find that word again in the book of James it's an interesting word it means seed sown by a sower now this is what he's saying he's saying that a Christian is a person that God sows like a seed now they fought the Jews thought well we'll just bring persecution against the church at Jerusalem and we'll scatter those people out across the world and we'll, we'll disturb their churches but, but really They weren't, you know, scattering them. What was happening was that God was planting them. Now watch this carefully. I want to put it in a nutshell. If you're a Christian, it means that God treats you like a seed and He plants you where He needs fruit. He plants you where you need fruit. I don't care where you live. I don't care what the street address is or what dormitory room you will be assigned or have been assigned or what desk you will get at school when fall semester begins. You're not there by accident. If you're a child of God and you believe in the providential work of God, and we have to if we believe in God, then every Christian becomes a seed that's planted out there wherever that person is because God needs fruit there. That means that every Christian ought to do two things, I think. He ought to accept where he is, and he ought to thank God for where he is. And as soon as you do that, when you begin to do that, God just brings people into your life that need your ministry. You ever notice that? One time a lady came up to me, and I would made a statement like this, that that if you begin to accept where you are and thank God and praise God for where you are, he'll just bring people into your life every day that need your ministry. She said, "I I didn't believe that. She said, I don't like where I live. She said, I hate where I work, but I decided I'd do what you said just to see if it was right. And she said, it wasn't a week So somebody stopped by my desk at work. Never really, had never really talked to her before. She said, I could tell she was just hungry to talk, and it wasn't long until she began to pour out her heart, and I ministered to her. And she said, about a week later, I went out to get my paper one morning, and I noticed my neighbor out getting her paper. I just called out to her and said, we, we just kind of chatted from time to time. We weren't really close. I said, she came over. She needed to talk. She said, all of a sudden, we were standing out in my front yard in our house, our, our robes, and she was just pouring out her heart. She just got some message of trauma, and I was able to comfort. for her. said, it's true when you begin to accept and praise God for where you are, and you begin to bloom where you're planted. You begin to bear fruit there. You begin to see that God planted you there. People start moving out. You know, you ever notice that people that move away are always the best people? You ever notice that God never moves any of them, ways He always moves the good, you know, the best ones. I used to pastor a military church down in Iowa Park, Texas. And they was always moving out, and, and, and man, it was the best people we had. They always moving. One day, I got a list of names, and I went in prayer, and I told the Lord, I said, "Hey, if you take these folks, we'll never miss them." Take these. you know, move these. And uh, I mean, I had I hadn't seen them in four years. I and mean, you, here, here's your list. And and but God just kept moving the best ones. And, and one day, uh, the Lances came to tell me that they were going to go over to Burkina Faso. One of the dearest couples we've ever had in this church. And I hate to see them leave. Lee Johnson comes in one day and says, "Sit down. You're going to need to sit down." Fix and tell you something. Best friend I've ever had. I'm leaving," he said. Phyllis Rustin comes in, says, "Well, Gerald, I feel that it's time for me to move on. I'm going to be God's leading me to a new, new, new area of life and ministry. You, you know what? You know what's happening. God's taking these seed and He's planting them over there. And he's putting that seed out there because He needs fruit there. Let me tell you something." Wherever you are, my friend, if you really know your Bible, if you're really a child of God, you're not there by accident. You're there because God's planted you there. He needs fruit there. Christian point four got plenty of time. A Christian is somebody who suffers while he's in the world. He suffers while he's in the world. Now Peter takes this person that he's talking about here and he elevates him in verses 3 through 5 to the heights. And he talks about those wonderful things that, that, are, that, are, that are God's children, this inheritance that's imperishable and undefiled and, and all this stuff that he talks about in verses 3 through 5. And, and you get a pretty good glimpse at, at this wonderful person that he, he's talking about here. And surely, you know, somebody like this, God's going to preserve and protect from all kinds of problems. Then he unloads verse 6 on us. And this same person he's talking about who is kept by the power of God is not kept from suffering. He's kept in it. Are you with me? It's important. He's not kept from distress. He's kept in distress. And he uses that word. He said, if essential, you have been very distressed. The word is heaviness in the King James. And it means to be crushed under a heavy burden. It means to be slammed up. It means to be rolled over by one of those steam rollers you see out there pressing out that asphalt you know, occasionally. That's exactly what it means. It means to be crushed like a grape until all the, all the flavor is gone. And he said, now, just because you're saved, just because you're a Christian, doesn't mean you're going to be exempt from the crushing of life. Those three things about this. If you're in distress and heaviness, and some people I think, you know, I get, the, when, I, when I hear prosperity preachers, I get the idea that it's a sin to, not to laugh. You know, and everybody's got to laugh all the way through life. And some people paint on these eye of smiles, you can see the teeth. And it doesn't no matter what happens, it, you know, everything is just happy and everybody's smiling and everybody's laughing. L- listen, folks, that's not the way it is. The way it is, that there'll be times when necessary, when if essential, when a person is going to feel like he's going, he's had all the life smashed from him. Three things about that: you're there by God's appointment. You're you're there by God's appointment. You can understand that if you're in heaviness, it's not because, you know, necessarily because you've done something wrong. It's not necessarily because God has lost control of you and lost control of circumstances. That's not what that means. It means that nothing comes to you except it passes through the providence and the permission of God. You're there by His appointment, you're there for His time. Now, the question is how long am I going to have to endure this? I don't know, but long enough. And you might as well, you know, quit looking at your watch and quit looking at your calendar. I'm wondering when you're going to get out of this heaviness because God doesn't work on the basis of your calendar and your watch. And I don't know how long some people have to endure heaviness. I don't know how long they feel crushed by the heaviest weight of life, but I do know this, long as God wants you to. That's how long. You're there by His time, and you're there for His purpose. Now watch, it's a threefold purpose, and it comes right out of the text. The purpose of this heaviness is to prove your faith. Prove it, he said. Now, a faith that has not been tested is not a proven faith. Now, I may get up and talk about faith. all oh, I want to talk about faith. But I, that faith, until it is tested by the stress, by the heaviness, it's not proved. And I think sometimes the, the, the heaviness... The, 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 the trouble, the heartache, the, the trials really are just God's magnifying glass just to test my faith for all that glitters is not gold. And all this stuff we talk about as being faith may not be genuine until, and, and the only way we're going to know if it's genuine or not is that it's endured the, the stress. It proves it. It's there for the purpose of purification, to burn off the dross now remember this, that if God puts you in the fire or He permits you in the fire, just remember this, He's not an arsonist. He's a refiner. And He wants the ultimate bottom line of that, 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 that heaviness. He wants the bottom line of that. When you come out on the other side of that, He wants the pure thing. He's there, it's there to purify you. It's there to prepare you. Now the amazing thing about this text is that he's preparing us for some future day. He said that we might, that you might be found. The word is discovery, a marvelous discovery. And what he's talking about is this, that when the Lord returns, he wants to discover that you have been here unto praise, praise unto him, for praise unto him. So he's preparing us with the heaviness for the day he returns and he'll discover that we've been, been praised unto Him. One last thought, please. A Christian is a person who is saved out of this world. Now look at verse 9. Obtaining as the outcome of your salvation, as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now verse 9 is written to people already saved. What's he talking about? He's talking about the ultimate salvation. When the Lord returns and He snatches you up out of this world. Now you understand the experience of salvation, don't you? It has three tenses. You have been saved from the penalty of sin. You are being saved from the power of sin. That's the doctrine of of sanctification. You will be saved from the presence of sin. And that takes place at the revelation of the Lord, at the second coming of Christ. When this world gets on fire, He saves you out of it. The story broke out of the western part of the United States, out of the Cascades. A, a mountain climber was lost. And he realized he was lost and his life was in danger, so he began to make preparation. He built him a little lean-to against the mountain for protection. And he, 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 he took some limbs and made him the snow, an SOS signal, and then he sat down. When they found him, alive this is what he said he said when I realized I was lost I knew that you'd be looking for me you'd come someday to find me so he said I made preparation for your coming he said I, I made this lean to so I could find shelter from the storm and I put this SOS signal out in the snow so that you'd recognize it if you came over in, a, in an airplane then he said I waited for you to come and save me. I've heard Grady Allison tell a lot of times that after the war his commanding officer came to him and said, Would you like to fly your own air your own aircraft home? He said, Would I like to fly my own aircraft home? And he said we well, got he got his crew and he told us about the jumps across, you know, Corregidor and over finally landing the west coast in San Francisco and there they refueled and he headed out to louisiana and he landed somewhere in louisiana and he he got in a bus and got went home he said he walked in his house and his mother who hadn't heard from him in weeks she knew the war was over and they'd been corresponding she hadn't heard from him in weeks had homemade cake fresh out of the oven still hot had it at you know took it out of the oven had his favorite vegetables and favorite meat fixed for lunch and had you know had the bed made up for him in his room as though she knew that he was coming that day as a matter of fact somehow she did and so she just got ready for him to come a christian is a person who is getting ready for him to come. Now let me ask you this. From the honest manual, have you discovered that a Christian is one say, selected right out from the world? Stranger to it, scattered in it, suffering while there, one day will be saved right out of it even so, come Lord Jesus. In a moment. We want to have an invitation, Him. Any word from God demands a response. Now, it's not information you've gotten this morning, it's a word from God. Now, information you can take and put on a piece of paper and put it in your Bible and keep it. Or you can put it in your pocket with some other time. That's information, but this is not information you've gotten this morning. This is a word from God, and a word from God demands response. I just pray that you'll have courage to respond publicly. I'm ask you to come in a moment. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've never trusted Him for salvation, you feel that drawing, you've felt it for a while, just pull and a tug and a... The stomach just gets all worked up inside when the invitation starts. It's because God, it's, a, it's from the Father. He's initiated the call to you for salvation. Won't you come? It's not going to get any easier. Maybe you need to come and join the church as many have across these years. I bet you we stood up this morning and said, how many of you joined the last 10 years here? Half these people in your beat standing. Maybe you need to come and rededicate your life to Christ. After I've led us in prayer, the choir will begin to sing. We'll want you to step out on the first verse, first word, because that's the easiest one to step out on. Let's pray. Lord, speak to our heart now. Put your, draw your circle around us, Holy Spirit. Do your work here. Call those to salvation you've selected out. From this world to be saved for Christians who need to take a new step a new stand church membership baptism Lord may this moment of invitation be what pleases you for I pray in Jesus name now in a spirit of prayer we'll stand to sing you come while we stand